This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Um, So I'm really happy to be here um, for a few reasons. First, I'm I'm in the middle of dissertation analyses, and it's nice to interact with humans uh, again. Um, I've been kind of cloistered for a very long time. Um, And uh, and this is a topic that's pretty dear to my heart, and so I'm glad to be here because uh, I have a passion for uh, supporting science and evidence-based policy. A big part of my dissertation research is trying to understand why people reject the advice of experts and how we can potentially overcome that. So being here at the BC Humanist Association is, is great. Um, and, uh, and this talk, uh, I'll be able to uh, kind of uh, build off of the themes that I talked about in my, in my TEDx talk um, and go into a little bit more detail. So I'm going to be presenting some graphs and some data that I think is really cool. I, I hope you do too. Uh, if, if there's any clarifications on those graphs, uh, f- feel free to, to raise your hand, but we'll save substantive questions towards the end. So America has a problem obviously, in its politics. It's ill. First, we have a rejection, an increasing rejection of traditional institutions. People trust the government less, for one. They trust the courts less, maybe for some good reasons. Um, But they also trust the mass media less. So the kind of institution where they get their information about politics, they don't trust it nearly as much as they did before. So this is a Gallup poll showing uh, trust in the mass media over time, uh, and it's gone down considerably from the 50s to about 33, 32. Um, this drop is found among Republicans for the most part, but the, on the left, they're trusting uh, the mass media less as well. There has been, coupled with this, a rise of misinformation. So fake news, as is now kind of a political buzzword. Um, there's all sorts of sources out there that look and feel legitimate, Um, This ABC News is not the real ABC News, but a lot of people can't tell the difference. Um, Most of them are right-wing, but not all of them are. Um, We have fake Twitter feeds, fake stories that are are put out there uh, on the left and on the right. Um, This was very clearly the case in the election. It's died down a bit, um, but uh, in the next election, it certainly will. It it takes nothing to set up a website and put out false information, and it gets twittered and tweeted about uh, and spreads throughout and can't be corrected nearly as effectively as it spreads. And coupled with this, obviously, is a rise of social media echo chambers that kind of put out this misinformation. Back in the 90s, you only really had MSNBC on on the left and and Fox News on the right. But now we have all sorts of sources of information that are divorced from traditional media sources um, that give information to the public um, for good and for ill. So this has benefits. A lot more viewpoint diversity is reflected in the media today than it used to be. Uh, But on the other hand, people can seclude themselves in media bubbles and not be... uh, exposed to information from the other side. I don't want to oversell this, though. The vast majority of Americans and Canadians still get their news from traditional media sources. But the most hyper-partisan of us almost exclusively get it from these sources. And that's a problem.
unsurprisingly, this rise of misinformation, these media bubbles has come with a rejection of expertise. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you some data that is some, to some degree not surprising, but also might be pretty shocking. Um, so for example, 88% of experts believe GMOs are safe. These are, these are members of the AAAS, so not necessarily specialists. Among specialists, there is a consensus that GMOs are safe. Among U.S. adults, only 37% think GMOs are safe. So there's a gap of 51% between experts and the public. And we find this gap on all sorts of issues of science and economics, favoring nuclear, nuclear power, childhood vaccinations, whether climate change is man-made, believing in carbon taxes, and the gap widens considerably when we talk about the consensus among economic experts. So the public is increasingly rejecting experts. They always have to some degree, but it's become fashionable to reject expertise in this kind of era of rising populism. So why, why is this happening? And, and the root of this phenomenon comes from human evolution. Each of us is hardwired to support the goals and interests of the social groups and the identities that we value. And the reason for that is that over the course of human evolution, people were able to survive by cooperating. And you do that by trusting and believing in your group, whether it's your family, your community, um, your, your identity as an atheist or as a Republican, uh, it doesn't matter. You, you support your groups. And through history, that was rewarded. And this manifests in two ways. There are other ways, but these are the ones I'm going to focus on. Disconfirmation bias, the tendency to reject on a hair trigger information that subverts your group's goals. And confirmation bias the tendency to accept information and to seek it out, information that conforms to your group's goals. So they're kind of mirrors of each other. And you, you might be thinking quite correctly that the rise of social media and misinformation goes, has a very toxic combination with these types of uh, these cognitive features that we've always had. So you think of it this way. You have an identity, and with this identity are packages of likes and dislikes in your political environment. So if you're, uh, if you're a Republican, you dislike Al Gore and Hillary Clinton and Democrats and probably atheists uh, and a whole other range of groups. And if you're on the left, you have packages of likes and dislikes as well. This is affect, likes and dislikes, simple as that. And these likes and dislikes color how we accept information in our environment. We, this is not a conscious process. Affect is subconscious. We do it instinctively. So if we see, if a Republican sees some information about climate change from Al Gore, really stop paying attention as soon as Al Gore is mentioned in any given article or news piece. It's not a conscious pro process. And so all of our identities have these packages of likes and dislikes. And we may, and the strength of our identity determines how strong those likes and dislikes are. Well, that's pretty dismal. Is there any way we can apply human reason to politics? And there absolutely is. It's just a bit more constrained than we probably would hope. It takes a lot of effort to process information. If you have a strong social identity, it takes a lot of effort to look at a piece of information, to put aside 
your identity and to assimilate that information objectively. It takes a lot of effort. And the problem in politics is a problem of motivation. That if we're really intensely engaged in the political process, which is a good thing in a lot of cases, we don't really have motivation to for our beliefs to be accurate. We have motivation for our beliefs to be in a certain direction. We want a certain end, and that is to support our groups. So psychologists call these directional goals, motivated to an end, versus accuracy goals, motivated to get things right. So politics is a bit different than the marketplace. In the marketplace, you want to make the right buying decision. You don't want to waste your money. So you maybe do some research to determine what car you want. You try to be accurate. You're not really motivated towards an end. But in politics, our vote doesn't change the outcome individually. Uh, a Facebook post that we post doesn't change an outcome. But we do derive a lot of utility from signaling our membership in certain groups. So our motivation is to support those groups. And if there are ways we can change our politics to reward accuracy over motivation, that's the direction we need to go in. But it's, it's tough. So this bias is rational. We derive a lot of benefit from being parts of groups. We're so, human beings are social creatures and we engage in politics accordingly. And it's not just about politics. All sorts of identities are implicated uh, in all sorts of aspects of our life. So sports is one example. Uh, I'm a diehard Buffalo Bills fan in American football. It is too bad. It is very too bad. So I was, I was socialized from a very young age to support a horrible, horrible team. And this is carried on through, you know, I have to keep the blinders on in order to maintain this identity, but nonetheless, it, it, it maintains itself to this day. So I have, again, when it comes to sports, packages of likes and dislikes. I really don't like Tom Brady because the New England Patriots are in the same division as the Buffalo Bills, and they have beat the hell out of the Buffalo Bills for the better part of several decades at this point. Um, and so most people think of Tom Brady as this kind of like award-winning quarterback. He's got five Super Bowls, the greatest of all time. Uh, but I can't bring myself to believe that. So when I get into a debate about this, I find myself, this is what I think about Tom Brady, I find myself thinking all sorts of other things. Oh, well, his coach has great, you know, is a great defensive mind. Uh, he cheats, all this. And, and so that's what I think. And I can't, and I know all the stats back up the other side, but I just can't bring myself to believe it. And, and so this, this happens all throughout. It could be your identity as an atheist maybe does this to you without you knowing it. Um, it's about sports. It's about any time we identify with a group. And this is a good thing. In a whole, it is very good that we're motivated to vent, defend groups that, we're, that we identify with. This is particularly true for uh, minority groups. But nonetheless, the bias presents itself for everybody. And it leads to some pretty peculiar political behavior. So I'm going to show you some data, which is kind of pretty wild. Some of you might be familiar with some of it because uh, it's gotten around the Twitterverse. Here's an example of partisan shifts in beliefs about the surveillance state. So the first poll on the left is, was done in 2006 under the Bush administration. 
Republicans were very much in favor of the surveillance state, Democrats very much opposed. During the Obama administration, who extended and supported a lot of Bush-era administration, things changed quite a bit. Republicans, you may remember Rand Paul signaling his you know, s- strong opposition to all that. Well, it, 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 this had an effect. Partisanship had an effect. Republican hawks became less hawkish now that Obama adopted their views, and Democrats started to endorse it. An even more jarring example is beliefs about the economy. Um, so this is from Gallup. Um, the first poll is, uh, was done a week before the election, the second poll a week after. And this is how things changed in terms of perceptions of the economy. So Republicans, as soon as Donald Trump got in office, well, now the economy's great after railing against it throughout the whole election campaign. Same tendency uh, is for Democrats, not as strong. But this varies issue by issue, whether it's stronger for Republicans or stronger for Democrats. I'm just beating up on Republicans now. Um, Here's another example. Republicans like Vladimir Putin a lot more than they did before. So Democrats haven't changed at all between 2014 and 2016. But Republicans went from disliking him, negative 36, that's on on a negative 100 to 100 favorability scale. Uh, And now they're negative 27. So edging towards kind of ambivalence. So Republicans who have made their bread and butter and being Russia hawks for decades now are eh, Russia. Crazy. Here's another example. This one I saw recently. Wild. Uh, First poll in 2011, um, whether you can forgive a politician for personal transgressions. White evangelicals, absolutely not. So 30% say they would. Now that Trump's in office, everything changes entirely. (laughs) Wild. Attitudes towards the Electoral College, whether people think the popular vote should determine the election, Victor. There was virtually no difference between Republicans and Democrats in the past. After this election, not so much. Democrats went up, not by a lot. Republicans went down by quite a bit. And it's not just about politics. Here's another, this is probably the craziest example. This is feelings towards Godfather's Pizza. So back in the 2012 primaries, uh, Herman Cain was CEO of Godfather Pizza. And then as that primary race went on, people started to like and dislike Godfather Pizza in line with their personal, and this was market research, so this wasn't supposed to pick up any, there wasn't supposed to be politics involved. It's just pizza. But nonetheless, it mattered. Partisanship is a hell of a drug. All right, but these are our kind of inbuilt psychological tendencies. Why are things getting so much worse? One thing I've hinted to is technology, that we're allowing ourselves to be secluded in media bubbles. Uh, There's also geographic sorting. So Republicans and Democrats don't live in the same places anymore. They don't talk to one another. So you can believe lots of weird stuff. But the biggest reason is polarization. So this is a, these are graphs of um, members of Congress, their ideal points, DW nominate scores they're called. So they look at their roll call voting, their votes in Congress, and it estimates how liberal and conservative you are. And you can use these scores to sh- see trends over time and how the parties diverge or converge. And this is back in the 70s, House of Representatives on the right, senators on the left. There's a lot of overlap between Republicans and Democrats. 
So ideology didn't sort representatives nearly as much as it used to. This is now. It's pretty wild. There's hardly any overlap at all. And, and the reason for this, to some degree, is that in the past, there used to be this block of Southern Democrats that were pretty conservative. Well, as the South shifted Republican, those people kind of faded away, and you were left with kind of a polarized elite. And this has trickled down into public opinion. It took a little while, but it's nonetheless happened. This is from Pew Research. This looks at overtime changes in how consistently liberal or conservative an individual is. So they're given a battery of questions. You score them conservative if they give a conservative answer, liberal if they give a liberal answer. And then you kind of sum them all up and see how consistently conservative or liberal they are. The public has moved apart. And this is even stronger when you look at people that are very are partisan activists or people that are politically sophisticated. So people that are engaged in politics, the, the gulf is even greater. It's not just about ideology, though. The other sides also just don't like each other. Part of that's motivated by ideology, but part of it is also social identities and affect. So this graph shows how much you dislike and like, how much you like your own party and dislike the other party. The like your own party is the, is the black line, and you can see there isn't much change over time. People have always liked their own political party, but they have increasingly started to dislike the other side. They used to be neutral towards them back in the 70s. Didn't really feel, on average, either way about the other side. That changed quite a bit. And it's gotten so intense that inter-party marriage is now way less acceptable than it used to be. So back in 1960, virtually no one said they'd be displeased with interpolitical marriage. Nowadays, the ga- it has gone up considerably, um, even stronger among Republicans. So people really don't like the other side. Part of that's ideology. Part of it is they're, they, you, you caricaturize the other side as people that are very unlike yourselves in, in, their, in their identity and their makeup. You see conservatives possibly as you know, rural, uh, rural rednecks that are completely divorced from reality. You really, really don't like them. And they don't like you either. So it's reciprocal, at least. There's that. Um, and that has lots of consequences. It means that when, when you have those packages of likes and dislikes, those dislikes have gotten pretty, pretty intense. And that has the possibility of biasing your assimilation of all sorts of different information, including from experts. So is this just an American thing? What about Canada? Well, the depressing thing is we have reason to suspect that this is going to be a problem in Canada too, if it isn't already. Um, because psychological tendencies are the same. It doesn't matter what country you're in. We're all hardwired the same way. And so the causes that are making things worse in the U.S. are also here as well. Social media bubbles, though not as intensely here as in the U.S., and polarization. So I'm going to show you, a, a kind of, I eyeballed this from a book, so it is not precise. Um, but this is from Chris Cochran, a professor at University of Toronto. He looked at, he coded party platforms going all the way back to, well, this goes further back to the 40s, but for ease of exposition, I'm going to leave it at the 70s, um, and on a, on a scale of left to right. And what he finds is that there hasn't really been any change for the NDP. They've more or less stayed a left-wing party. But for conservatives, 
starting in about the 80s, they've gotten far more right-wing. It started in the 80s, not the Harper period. The liberals were more or less the, occupied the equivalent policy space as the conservatives back in the 50s and 60s, and they have moved to the left to the degree which it's debatable whether they're that distinguishable from the NDP. So we have elite polarization, just like the graphs that I showed you in the United States. And this has also trickled down to public opinion. So uh, sadly, the data we have in Canada is not as good, but I'm going to show you some feeling thermometer scores, so 0 to 100 scores uh, on how you like or dislike um, the other political parties or your own party. So this is for liberal partisans. The blue line is how they feel about the conservatives. It's gone down considerably over time. It went from neutral towards the conservatives to, on average, disliking them a fair amount. That understates it. The amount of people that really, really dislike the party has gone up even more. This is just an average. They've also come to like the NDP. So again, left-right polarization. For conservatives, now they don't really distinguish between the Liberal Party and the NDP. They don't like them. They never liked the NDP. And for the NDP, they kind of like the liberals a bit more, but really, really don't like the conservatives. This isn't surprising, but its roots are in the, our ideological polarization that has happened among elites. So this is the same as what's happened in the United States. Here's the graph from the U.S. again, just so you can compare. Pretty similar. We don't have data about how intensely that dislike is, whether it affects inter-party marriage or all these other things that have been studied in the U.S. This is a blind spot in Canadian political science, it's something I'm hoping to work on in the future. So we are polarized, but does this affect how we assimilate information? I did an experiment uh, using undergraduate students that are generally anti-conservative. I gave them a piece of information about the economy it was either, it was against their beliefs about the economy. So if they thought the economy was doing well, I gave them an article saying the economy is doing badly, and then vice versa. Um, so that's the bottom line. So if they're given positive or negative information. I then asked, I gave them the opportunity after they were exposed to this information to adjust their beliefs about how the economy was doing. So that's what this measurement is, the change in their evaluations about the economy. I had two other groups. It attributed the strength of the economy, whether it's weak or positive, to either the current liberal government or the previous Harper government. And what we find is that if they were given positive information about the economy and attributed to the liberals, they changed their evaluations substantially but not really nearly as much if it, was be if it was seen as the result of Harper-era policies. And if they were given negative information, the exact mere opposite happened. They didn't change it at all, startlingly so for the liberals, but did so for the conservatives. So the students that I used, I'm going to scale this up into a representative sample and do a couple more manipulations. So it's, it's a work in progress for my dissertation. Um, but the preliminary results suggest that, yes, Canadians do kind of assimilate information in a biased way because of their partisan identities. In the case of Canada, there isn't ne as neat of a mapping on of ideology and partisanship because we have three main parties. 
And then the Greens add a complicating factor. In the U.S., it's the Liberal and the Conservative Party, Republican and Democrat. So it's not as clean in Canada. And the, the graphs I showed you earlier suggest it really is about ideology. So we have a problem. And we also, as a result of this perhaps, have some pretty peculiar beliefs. There was a poll that came out recently um, by Leisure about Canadian attitudes towards science. So 52% of Canadians think GMOs are bad for your health. 47% think the science of climate change is unclear. 19% think there's a link between vaccines and autism. Um, not all of that's partisanship. GMOs isn't really a partisan issue, neither is vaccines. Uh, climate change is to some degree. Um, but ideology is implicated. Your likes and your dislikes are implicated. When it comes to GMOs, um, something I'm wanting to work on in the future, uh, I strongly suspect what's going on is people's dislikes of particular corporations, and that's coloring their attitudes towards the technology, broadly speaking. Um, but yeah, it's not good. Um, so we can't be complacent. Our elites are polarizing. We're polarizing. Our ideological identities are more important than ever before. This was never a thing before. Can Canada's parties used to be anchored in our social cleavages. So uh, progressive conservatives were the Protestant party. Liberals were the Catholic party. Liberals were the Quebec party. Conservatives were the English Canadian party. It wasn't as much about ideology, but now it is. And so we have to be concerned now that there's a kind of a tight fit between ideology and our party system that we're all going to, that our politics may descend the way that it has in the United States. We can't be complacent. So what can we do about this? This is pretty bleak. Uh, and there's not really any easy answers. We can't really change our psychological tendencies. We probably don't want to even if we, we could. Um, but there are some things institutionally and socially that we can do to perhaps make, make things a little bit better. So from an institutional perspective, um, two things come to mind. One uh, is uh, deliberative democracy. So this is a, a rich theory and uh, theory that emerges out of political theory. Um, so a little bit far outside my field, so I'm not going to say too much about it. Aside from there's a belief among a lot of people in this field that if we change how we do politics, we might be able to talk and engage with our, each other a bit more civilly. So if you put people in a room that disagree with each other, with a properly structured converse, conversation, where people engage with each other with respect, uh, that you listen to the concerns of others, that you acknowledge them, that when you have that kind of setting, you might be able to get people a little bit out of the bunker mentality that is dominating our politics these days. So citizens' assemblies are, are one such way of doing this, um, but also lots of de there's lots of like democratic deliber deliberative democratic town halls lots of these micro level institutions that people are starting to experiment with there's a lot to be said about that but it's going to be hard to really push our society in that direction because our majoritarian kind of oppositional democratic institutions are here to stay um, so we have to change things to accommodate those institutions as well another thing is journalism um, one uh, important component of my research is coding media content and how, how well it kind of covers expert issues, how well it really mirrors the political debate that exists. And, and what's very clear is that the media make things a lot more charged than they need to be. So that 
in terms of climate change, you hardly get an example where a conservative is, yes, carbon taxes. They exist, though. Michael Chong exists. He couldn't get the time of day. I coded uh, media content for the conservative leadership race. He couldn't get the time of day in the media on climate change. They only covered him when he was attacking Kelly Leach. So the media has a tendency to kind of frame the debate in a way that accentuates conflict. We need a change in journalistic norms to kind of pare that down a bit. Obviously, you can't ignore conflict. It's an inherent part of politics, but balance needs to be had. So I'm not particularly optimistic about either of these two things in practice. Um, journalists in particular do not like being told what to do, and they get very defensive when I criticize them or others. So I'm kind of more invested in these social changes, things that each of us can do individually when we're engaging with others to make things a bit better. And, and one is that we need some changes in persuasion tactics. So we have a tendency to preach to the choir on all sorts of other issues. We make an argument that sounds really great by our standards, but it is not calibrated to persuade anybody that disagrees with our values or beliefs. So we need to do things to change that. One of them is moral reframing. So uh, Rob Willer, who uh, is an academic, I can't remember the university off the top of my head, he has a TEDx talk. You should, you should Google search it. Uh, he looks at moral reframing as a way of kind of depolarizing issues where there's a lot of expert agreement. One such example is, is the environment. So he looked at, and I'll show you a graph of his, he looked at um, whether you change, if you change the words to frame a certain environmental issue, if you change it to focus on purity and sanctity, that you're preserving your environment to be pure. You these are conservative values. If you use those kind of words, you can persuade conservatives to support environmental regulation or policies they won't otherwise support. So the neutral condition on the left is just the baseline control. So there's a big gap between liberals and conservatives. A harm care condition is kind of the argument that a lot of people on the left make about the environment. It obviously had no effect. Had some effect for liberals, none for conservatives. But if you use that purity sanctity frame, you depolarize the issue. So there's some possibility that if we reframe the issues that we're interested in in language that the other side understands, we can potentially dampen polarization on a number of issues. I think even more important is the potential that I, I think arguments matter. So there are some arguments that can bridge divides between the left and the right. So on, on climate change, we tend not to use free market arguments to support action on climate change. And that's a shame because back in the 70s, Milton Friedman was a very strong proponent of taxes on pollution to curb market externalities. This is the language that economists use, and a lot of people that believe in the free market are open to those sorts of arguments. Carbon taxes, then, are some of the best policy tools to deal with this type of situation. But the problem is we don't tend to use free market arguments to talk about climate change. We tend to use arguments that the left supports. So another Another interesting piece uh, by Dixon et al. Uh, looks at, well, what if we expose people to free market arguments about tackling climate change? 
And what they found was that if you did so, it actually mattered. Telling conservatives there's an ex expert consensus made no difference at all. But if you used free market arguments on tackling climate change, you were able to persuade even some very conservative subjects. The kind of unfortunate side effect of that argument is it made some people that were very liberal less likely to believe in climate change. I, I hope that that, it wasn't quite statistically significant, so I can't read too much into it, but it was a, it's a bit troubling. None, nonetheless, there is some, there is evidence out there that we can talk to conservatives about climate change. You just have to stop preaching to the choir. And we're all very bad at this. Conservatives are bad at it for issues where they're trying to persuade liberals as well. We talk past each other, not to each other, and so no one persuades anybody. And for some issues, like climate change, we need societal consensus. We can't have these, this gulf. Republicans aren't going away in the United States. They're there. They have a lot of power. They have control of Congress, the presidency, basically every state legislature that matters. That's a problem. So you're not going to solve it by beating up on them, have to talk in language that they understand. Another part of this so the one side of it is the message matters. The other side of it is the messenger matters. So people learn about politics from people and sources that they trust or that they like. And if they dislike a certain source, they may go in the exact opposite direction of what that source intends. So these are called source cue effects in political psychology. The messenger matters. So in some of the research that I'm doing with a colleague we kind of look at whether these cue sources in the media environment affect polarization on climate change. So here's, here's a couple graphs. The one on the left shows we, we basically gathered all the polls that were out there on beliefs about climate change since 1991. Uh, and we were able to construct a measure of how skeptical, on average, Americans are about climate science. And so as you see, it's gone up over time. There... Oh. As you may also see, something happened in 2006 that dramatically increased climate skepticism. On the right is a, is a similar measure done uh, by Huckster, Carmichael, and Bruley. I can't pronounce his name. Uh, this is the average gap between Republicans and Democrats on climate change between 2001 and 2013. As you see, there's a similar increase in 2006. Dramatic. What, is it, can, does anybody know what happened in 2006? Inconvenient truth. Inconvenient truth. Yep. Inconvenient truth. Al Gore happened in 2006. Um, and so in our coding of the media content around that time, especially in conservative media, obsessed with Al Gore. They used him as a bludgeon to discredit climate science. So we find that Science, climate science has become increasingly politicized in the media. It's dramatically gone up over time. It's gone up more among Democratic elites. So Democrats are talking about climate change. Republicans try to get away from it. And up until 2009, when the Republican Party went kind of off the rails on everything, um, before 2009, they were sending mixed messages on climate change. You'd have people like John Warner or John McCain who'd come out with cap-and-trade regulation. Um, you'd have lots of 
legislatures, Republican legislatures, uh, state legislatures taking action on climate change, but not the action that environmentalists want necessarily, but they were talking about it and engaging with it as an issue. Things changed in 2009, that no longer happens. But most of the polarization on climate change had happened well before then. So what we find once we like model kind of the features of the media environment, uh, certain climactic and, and economic changes, what we find is that the presence of Democrats in the media in any given quarter or year is strongly related to climate change polarization and aggregate skepticism. Republican messages aren't. Neither are climate skeptics or anybody you may think causes polarization. Democrats do. And this builds off a lot of literature in, climate, in, in, in public opinion research that you know, as Americans increasingly dislike the other side, if they're getting messages from that other side, like Al Gore saying climate science is a thing, they're going to say, no, I don't like you. It's not a thing. That's kind of how we deal with politics at some level. So we need to build coalitions. Getting Republicans, there's other research that shows that if a Republican sends a correction about climate science, that Republicans are willing to believe that correction. So we need to build cross-partisan coalitions. It's difficult, especially in this really polarized age, to do so, but it, it's really important that we do it. Sending someone like Al Gore out there saying messages that don't resonate with conservatives is counterproductive. Uh, we need a better approach. And so part of that is each of us individually recognizing our own biases in politics. And when we need to introduce young people to this at an early age. It's an important part of being a democratic citizen that we learn how to engage with and talk to other people, even if they disagree with us a lot. We need to stop using science as a bludgeon. That we have this scientific claim and then you're wrong. Just stand there in your wrongness. You were incorrect. You were a denier. That puts people on the defensive. No one's willing to learn in that kind of climate. So we need to talk to each other more effectively. Beware the backfire effect. If you bludgeon... If you use science as a bludgeon, it's going to backfire. Not just it won't be persuasive, but they'll actually be less likely to believe you than before. So we have to think with, with these changes, it's tough. We need, each of us individually needs to make a difference in how we talked about politics. But if we do that, we can maybe make our politics a little bit more civil and a little bit more factual. We'll never get rid of our bias entirely. It's always going to be a part of group politics but we need to change things because it's getting quite bad out there. So thanks.